Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, we have opportunity today to reach back in the archives and uh, hear an interesting episode from uh, from the past. And uh, to set this up today, um, during the pledge drive, uh, one of my former student interns, producer of the program, Amy Kobabe, recorded a spot for us for the pledge drive. Let's hear this to set up today's episode. Hi, I'm Amy Kobabe, and I wanted to share with you some of my favorite moments that I remember with Utah Public Radio as we celebrate 65 years. We think back on some of those times that we've had that have impacted our lives. And obviously, when you've got something like sound that's coming into your car, into your home, into your earbuds, a lot of the time, you're a little more intimate with it, and you can think of it more in a way that's... I guess closer to home hits you. And that's definitely happened for me. I remember listening to an Access Utah on homesickness once. And it was just a few months after I had returned home from an LDS mission. And I, it just struck me as so relatable and just what I needed to hear. And I think that that's a lot of what public radio can do is it can hit us in ways that are very close to home. And it can also bring us stories that are very not close to home and help us understand those things as if they were just next door, just sitting in that car with you. And so you can join your voice now. You can be part of the next 65 plus years with Utah Public Radio. Give your contributions and thank you. Utah Public Radio for the time that you've given me great years working with you. Congratulate you on 65 years and hope to hear many great stories in the future as things continue. Thank you. So thanks for that, Amy. And uh, here now is an episode of Access Utah, first broadcast in January of 2015. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Homesickness today is dismissed as a sign of immaturity. It's what children feel at summer camp. But in the 19th century, it was recognized as a powerful emotion. When gold miners in California heard the tune Home Sweet Home, they sobbed. When Civil War soldiers became homesick, army doctors sent them home lest they die. Such images don't fit with our national mythology, which celebrates the restless individualism of immigrants and supposedly left home and never looked back. Susan Matt, who is a Weber State University professor, a chair of the history department there, author of Homesickness in American History, says that iconic symbols of the undaunted, forward-looking American spirit were often homesick, hesitant, reluctant voyagers. And even today, in a global society that prizes movement, that condemns homesickness as a childish emotion, colleges counsel young adults and their families on how to manage the transition away from home. Suburbanites pine for their old neighborhoods, and companies take seriously the emotional toll borne by relocated executives and road warriors. By highlighting how Americans have reacted to moving farther and farther from their roots, Susan Matt revises long-held assumptions about home, mobility, and our national identity. Susan Matt joins us by the telephone. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you uh, coming on uh, with us. Uh, I'm curious how you got into this subject. What what provoked this? Well, uh, I'm a historian of emotions, which is a small subfield, and uh, I study the emotions that I guess I experience most and um, which I wonder about. And when I moved out to Utah in 1999 with my husband, we had been very eager to move west. But once I got here, um, I began to long a bit for my family in Chicago and um, 
began to wonder if I was the only person who had ever felt some sadness about leaving home. I had grown up hearing that it was absolutely normal to move on and pull up stakes and relocate, and nobody had ever told me there was a sad side to it. So I wondered if I was a freak or if there was something larger going on in American culture, and I was happy to find out that I was not alone. Uh, uh, it goes against our national myth, doesn't it? The, the, it you know, this, the, 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 as you say in the book, uh, we're rugged individualists. We move on and we don't look back. That's exactly the stories I'd been raised on, of uh, settlers heading west in wagons, and you never look, see them looking over their shoulders in the movies. Uh, and uh, gold miners heading to California, there's never a sense in the mythologies we've created that this was a painful process. And so I was absolutely surprised when I found it painful. Even when I was going someplace I really wanted to, uh, it wasn't as easy as it had cracked up to be. And not only do we not, I don't know, acknowledge this, we, I think we actively repress this, don't we? It's, as, as you say, it's, it's dismissed as a sign of immaturity. It's what children feel at summer camp. It's not, not what I feel. Yeah, exactly. And we're, uh, as 20th and 21st century Americans, we're kind of strange in denying the feeling compared to our ancestors. Uh, most of our ancestors, whether they were immigrants um, in the 17th century or immigrants in the 19th century, were pretty open that they uh, were longing for places they'd left behind. And in fact, if you didn't feel homesickness, if you didn't feel sadness at leaving people you cared about in places you were familiar with behind, there was something wrong with you. It's only in the 20th century we've kind of pathologized the emotion and, and infantilized infantilized and making it a, a kid's emotion. Uh, it was something grown men would would readily acknowledge in the 19th century. As we go along here, I want to uh, trace that uh, evolution, and, and I'll ask you why. What if you could, uh, if you have your book with you, uh, mm-hmm. page the first paragraph in your introduction, this will illustrate the differences between then and, and now. Sure. Uh, it opens with uh, this anecdote. In 1887, 42-year-old Reverend Father J.M. McHale left Ireland to take up a position in a Brooklyn parish. Shortly after arriving in New York, he became afflicted with nostalgia and began to waste away. Newspaper accounts reported that McHale proclaimed, I cannot eat. My heart is breaking. In his troubled sleep, he talked of Ireland and his friends there. He often murmured, I am homesick. My dear country, I will never set foot on your green shores again. Oh, my mother, how I long to see you. He eventually lost consciousness and died. His death was attributed to homesickness, or nostalgia, as it was then called. And this was not an unusual diagnosis in 19th century America, nor was newspaper coverage of McHale's death. Papers sometimes reprinted the pathos-filled letters of migrants separated from their loved ones and sometimes carried news of their sorrowful deaths. So here's a man who died of homesickness. Yeah, and that's remarkably common um, from the uh, 17th century to the early 20th century, uh, newspapers, medical journals, diaries are all filled with accounts of people dying of homesickness, which uh, from the 17th century on was called nostalgia. Uh, that word was coined by a Swiss doctor who wanted to describe um, acute homesickness that could cause physical illness, and it became a medical diagnosis that was used into the 20th century by American doctors. And Reverend McHale was one of the people to fall victim to it. Uh, people really thought it was a medical condition. Now, in the Civil War, you write that the doctors were very concerned about this. You, you could be sent home for homesickness. Exactly. Uh, 
there was a national awareness of the problem, and all over 5,200 Union soldiers were diagnosed with nostalgia acute enough to have medical symptoms, and 72 Union soldiers died of the condition. It's really interesting to go back to the Surgeon General's records and see um, deaths caused by a variety of diseases, and there's nostalgia listed as one of them. Uh, so people were eager to uh, reduce the number of deaths due to nostalgia and to avoid condemning soldiers to this painful suffering. Uh, often Army commanders would send uh, acutely homesick boys home. That was really the only known cure for the disease. Hmm. There were other interesting things during the Civil War. Sometimes Army bands were forbidden from playing the most popular song in America, Home Sweet Home, because uh, the fear was it would render soldiers melancholic and then they'd gradually waste away. <laughs> wow. Uh, that, this seems so foreign to us, doesn't it, in, in today's day? I wonder, I'd like to compare and contrast this, and, and you, soon after you, in the book, you tell the uh, story of the death of Reverend McHale, you uh, quote New York Times um, writer Catherine Lanford. Tell me that story. Yeah, Catherine Lanford uh, was a writer who moved from Minnesota to Manhattan, actually, to write for the uh, Al Franken show. In 2004, she talked about the experience of moving from the Midwest to the East Coast. She said, my first week ended with a sharp bout of homesickness. To cheer herself up, she decided to get a manicure, and she told the Korean woman who was doing her hands, I'm pretty homesick but she did not encounter much sympathy from the manicurist, who was herself far from home. The manicurist looked at Lamfer with impatience. According to Lamfer, her eyes narrowed. She sucked in some breath, and then she barked out an uppercase admonition, don't be big baby. <laughs> it's a modern attitude towards homesickness. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the modern attitude, is don't be a big baby. Yeah, you're supposed to get over it. I mean, that's why we send kids to camp, and that's why... If you're not over it by camp, then you're over it by college. At least that's the theory. Um, But I think it's more uh, that people learn that while they still can feel the emotions, it's not proper to talk about them. So then what? It it seems so foreign to us then. We learn about Reverend McHale dying of homesickness and Civil War doctors taking this uh, condition very seriously enough to send needed soldiers home. Uh, lest, lest they die. Um, so what, what was going on there? I guess from our vantage point, we could see this as, I don't know, mass hysteria or something. Yeah, I think it was um, depression. Uh, what we would call depression, and depression itself is a newly created category that only occurs in the 1920s, but we would call it depression. And often in um, the Civil War, people said it was a condition that would... Um, latch on to other conditions. So if you had dysentery and then you got nostalgia, the two combined would be particularly fatal. Um, So it would weaken you and then you might be more susceptible to other other diseases as well. And there were whole debates about whether um, it alone caused death or if it worked in combination with other um, illnesses. But uh, people were very sincere in believing that it could be a fatal condition. And I guess I take them seriously. We keep changing our terms for um, psychological and physical diseases. I don't think in a hundred years all the terms we have today will be believed as credible either. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting point. You know what? What will people pick out from what we consider to be, I guess, you know, normal? Yeah, I mean, ADHD didn't exist before. I mean, it may have existed, but we didn't have a category for it. 
um, until the 20th century. There are all these conditions that um, exist in societies but um, get named, relabeled, recategorized, and homesickness was certainly one of those. It makes me wonder, you know, in 100 years, people looking back at our times and calling us big babies for something, you know. Yeah, I can't quite imagine... Which of our <laughs> many complexes will be called big babies for? But I'm sure we will. That's, that's right. I guess one one generation judging judging another. Um, you you say in your introduction that you you quote Gene Starobinsky. Is that how the mm-hmm. first historian to critically study homesickness? So of course, uh, always individuals long for home. But the invention of names for this was uh, came around what colonial period? Yeah, it actually happens first in Europe. In 1688, this uh, Swiss doctor, Johannes Hofer, comes up with the name nostalgia, and he uses Greek words to make it sound like it's this ancient disease, but the word doesn't exist between before 1688. And he describes in a medical journal uh, a case of a young man who lived in Bern, Switzerland, and went to Basel, which was about 60 miles away, and began to get ill, um, so ill he was going to die, and then uh, his friends put him on a hospital litter and carry him across the mountains. And as he gets closer and closer to home, he revives. And he gave some other cases of young people uh, similarly at death's door. Um, and his dissertation on nostalgia, published in 1688, um, started a trend across Europe, which eventually spread to America, um, of, of people using this category, nostalgia, um, to diagnose illness. Uh, and then uh, the word homesickness uh, soon followed. It did not exist in English until the 1750s and probably crossed over to America uh, shortly thereafter. It got put in wide use pretty quickly because there were lots of people far from home in the Americas who found that word very relevant to their feelings. So for, for a lot of history, people weren't all that mobile. So, you know, it, it, it kind of strikes me, it's very striking to me that this, this fellow got nostalgia by traveling from Bern to, to Basel, right? That's not, not very far, but it was it was far to him. Yeah, it was 60 miles, and that could seem like, you know, six days' journey maybe. So it, it was a great deal farther than he'd been. And uh, even in America in the 19th century, a lot of people have never been more than 20 miles uh, from their house at the at the start of the century. So uh, how far things were was, was relative, and uh, people were, even if they moved, didn't move as far or as often as Americans uh, became accustomed to. Lots of people who start moving um, in America talk about how unnatural it is. It just doesn't seem right to move from your uh, your parents or your house and leave that behind. And ministers would preach against it as defying God's law. Uh, so there was a lot of opposition to mobility um, in America and in Europe, uh, and a lot of worry about what it could do to you uh, emotionally, physically, and morally. So even in America, which we, that, of course, became, I think, quickly part of our national ethos, right? This yeah. This restlessness that, that, that Tocqueville, he, he mentions this. Uh, yeah, that, you know, Americans will build a house and move before the roof is on. Yeah. That, that's the image I uh, always read about in, in college, in grad school. Uh, and then uh, there were just a few things that sort of peeked out at me that made me think maybe that wasn't the truth, or the whole truth, anyhow. Um, and there was a lot of regretful uh, backward glances. And what surprised me um, was how early this started in America. Even the first settlers in America 
were eager to go home. So um, colonists in Virginia often tried to return home if they had the money. Even the Puritans, the pilgrims, who we think were so dedicated to the religious cause and the religious communities they were founding here, probably one in six went home and a far larger number wanted to but couldn't afford to. Mm. Um, But again, that's kind of left out of our story because we like to think of America as a magnet that attracts people. Um, And the reality is this was a place a lot of people thought they'd try out and then go back home after perhaps making a profit here. That was the goal of a lot of people who initially settled, whether they were coming in the 1600s or uh, the present day. That's a a common uh, sort of goal and plan for the journey to America. It's not going to be forever. Often it turns out to be a permanent new home, but most people intend to go home when they come here. We'll take a break. We'll come back with uh, Susan Matt, who is the chair of the History Department at Weber State University. Uh, she is Presidential Distinguished Professor of History at Weber State, and she's author of Homesickness and American History. That's what we're talking about today. Also author of Keeping Up with the Joneses, Envy in American Consumer Society, and uh, other works. And uh, we'll talk, we'll bring it forward as we go along to today. And uh, Susan Matt just made reference to um, this this essential feature of globalization and uh, the fact that I think we still have this idea that we, since we can travel and, and since we can go somewhere else and make a better life for our family back home, uh, that perhaps there isn't that emotional cost, or at least we downplay that uh, quite a bit. Uh, so we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about people who actually did go home and found uh, well, home has moved on as well. More following the break. Hello, this is Jimmy Berman with the United Way of Cache Valley. Keeping a healthy lifestyle improves how we age, especially our brain function. Here's how you can help decrease your chances of developing dementia. Stay active, go for walks, attend aerobics classes, or work in your yard. Keep a healthy diet, eat lots of fruits and vegetables. As hard as it is, limit sweets and processed foods. Exercise your mind, read books, do crosswords, or try brushing your teeth with your other hand. It may seem silly, but it challenges your brain. And volunteer. Whatever you do, make it a regular part of your life. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Retired and Senior Volunteer Program of Cash and Rich Counties, bolstering social support and well-being of aging adults and family caregivers. Information at sunshineterrace.org slash RSVP. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2015. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Homesickness today is dismissed as a a sign of immaturity. It's what children feel at summer camp. But in the 19th century, it was recognized as a powerful emotion. When gold miners in California heard the tune Home Sweet Home, they sobbed. When Civil War soldiers became homesick, Army doctors sent them home lest they die. Such images don't, of course, fit with our national mythology, which celebrates the restless individualism of immigrants who supposedly left home and never looked back. That, of course, is not true. And uh, Susan Matt, who is Presidential Distinguished Professor of History at Weaver State University, has written a book, Homesickness and American History. She is a historian of uh, emotions. How, how do you phrase it, Susan Matt? You study emotional history? What? Uh, yeah, I think you said it. The, I'm a historian of the emotions. Uh, of the, of the emotions, think yeah. Strange, but emotions do have a history, and they change over time. 
By the way, how do you how do you parse that out? I guess you you go people express themselves in their diaries. What, where else do you go? Um, diaries, letters, um, sometimes medical reports, psychological reports. I think you can even find uh, emotions in gravestones and quilts and paintings. Uh, once you start looking for them, they're um, they're ubiquitous. Sometimes you can even find them, say, in gardens. Uh, for homesickness, I was intrigued to find out that the fact that there are lilacs growing in Southern California is um, representative of the fact that New Englanders moving to the Southwest wanted the landscape to look familiar. So you can find emotions all around us, but you have to be on the lookout. And this is in, this is an interesting case study. I imagine and, you know it's one reason why you wrote the book. Uh, there's such a big disconnect between what we're supposed to be feeling and what we're actually feeling with, with regard to homesickness. Yeah, you know, one uh, kind of transformative moment for me, I moved to Ogden in 1999, and if you know the Ogden landscape at the north end, Ben Lomond Mountain uh, dominates the skyline, and somebody in my in the history department told me that it had been named by a homesick Scottish immigrant, and mm. I thought, well, that's weird. There shouldn't have been any homesick westerning pioneers. Um, so even the names of uh, familiar mountains, hills, lakes often reflected where people came from. But again, in the 19th century, they would have expressed it um, not just through naming mountains, but in their diaries and letters. In the 20th century and 21st century, we've become much more reticent about talking about those feelings because we worry what people think. And surveys show that um, today people who express the emotion or want to express it fear that they're going to be viewed negatively. Yeah, they can be a powerful, can it? Uh, societal pressure, family pressure, what we decide as a culture is is acceptable or taboo, that can have a powerful effect on us. Yeah, and in fact, homesickness has been called a taboo emotion today for adults. Uh, so people learn that there are other ways to channel the emotions. Maybe they'll buy foods that their mother back in India made or try to make them themselves. Maybe they'll watch... Uh, television programs that now, through the wonders of satellite, they can see anywhere in the world. Uh, so there are other ways people may express their, uh, their longing to be back um, without using words. You're welcome to join the conversation here with uh, Susan Matt. She's a presidential distinguished professor of history at Weber State University, and her book, very interesting book, uh, out from Oxford University Press, Homesickness and American History is our topic uh, for the day. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, or you can join us on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. Um, perhaps you'd like to discuss your homesickness. We'll, we'll give you permission here on the program. Um, 1-800-826-1495. Uh, and uh, tell us your experience uh, migrate, migrating, or perhaps this is something passed down in your family. Uh, for example, here in the West, uh, Susan Matt, uh, you know, those, those, that Kentucky bluegrass that we care for so carefully, uh, that's a sign of collective homeless sickness, isn't it? Oh, I think that's a great example. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a perfect example of um, landscapes that ancestors remembered and tried to recreate. Um, so I wonder, uh, going back to your experience, you come out from Chicago, come to Utah, and, and you f- you find that you're you're homesick. Um, part of that is you're missing your your immediate family, right? And part of it is I don't know cultural. You're missing the culture back there. 
Yeah, I think the culture and just um, some of the, you know, daily sights of life, uh, some of the assumptions uh, people carry in their heads, just the the way people speak. And it wasn't anything I necessarily, um, you know, went through and said, I miss this and this and this. I, I did realize that all of a sudden in my classes, my students were learning a somewhat Chicago-centric uh, brand of American history, uh, where it seemed to be the center of most things. And I'm not, I'm not trying to give them an inaccurate sense of American history, but I realized I talked and thought about America, uh, about Chicago, quite a bit, um, with my students, with my colleagues. And then they're, I don't know, I guess it can be charming to see the exotic aspects of your new culture you know, fry sauce, funeral potatoes, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. But but it, it highlights, I suppose, for you that, that you're not home. Right. And uh, I think most people end up kind of building a hybrid identity where they embrace part of what they've left behind and embrace part of their new culture. And, and certainly um, now having been here almost 16 years, I, I feel much more at home here. And um, often when I go back to the Midwest, I'm, I'm glad I live in Utah. But... Um, but uh, yeah, at first, a lot of the things that I take for granted today seemed seemed quite foreign. So you've been in Utah, what you say, nineteen years? Yeah, uh, sixteen. Yeah, Six, sixteen years. Uh, do you feel at home here now? What uh, what has happened over over that time? Well, I think uh, I, I do feel more, more at home here. My husband and I intentionally came to Utah. We wanted to live in the West. We'd been talking about it all through our grad school years. Uh, we knew we liked hiking and biking and and skiing, and all of those um, assets of, of Utah have uh, certainly uh, we've taken advantage of. But, you know, we also made good friends. We developed a community, a sense of social bonds. And I think that what also happens is the longer in your, you're in one place, the longer you're away from the places you've left so that uh, a shift happens and the uh, relationships that are most alive are the ones you're in the midst of every day, um, uh, excepting, of course, my parents. Who, mm, right. You know, but. So, I mean, the opposite of homesickness would be feeling at home, I suppose. I, I, yeah. And, and, yeah. and so what, what is that? Is, is, uh, how do you, I mean, it's family, right? That, that's part of it. It's culture. What, what else is that? Oh, family, culture. I think people often feel the, the lack of, um, Food, that's something that either you're longing for or you're satisfied with, depending if you're feeling at home or homesick. Um, I think music, uh, language is a huge one for a lot of people. Sometimes uh, when I was reading accounts of people who felt homesick, one thing that made them feel not at home was the way America structures its neighborhoods, particularly uh, post-World War II, where we had kind of scattered suburban developments um, not extended families, but just the nuclear family uh, household. And if you were somebody coming from Vietnam or Cuba or Mexico, where you might have more generations in a household and more close neighbors with whom you could talk and more of an open-door front porch policy than many American neighborhoods allow today, uh, you miss that community, that sense of just uh, always being with kin, always having a neighborhood. Um, I don't think... uh, modern American building styles really uh, accommodate that um, that style of living, which is so common throughout the rest of the world. I want to go back and uh, pick up some things from the colonial period. Also, a couple of very interesting case studies uh, of slaves. 
mm-hmm. who, who were brought by force to this country. That's an interesting case study. And uh, the Indians who were you know forcibly removed. There's a very interesting picture of uh, the, from the Carlisle Indian School. I'll talk about that as well. But I want to bring it forward to today. So th- this idea that homesickness should not be emphasized, that fits very well with globalization, right? And you right. look at an op-ed piece you wrote in the New York Times. Um, yeah. But it, it, it doesn't, you know, it shouldn't mask the fact, you say, that people still feel homesick, even with technology. Yeah, I think we've always felt uh, that somehow we would solve the problem of homesickness, that it would resolve itself, um, and that at some point, um, you would be able to overcome the fact of distance. Uh, and so we hear this all the time, whether people are selling cell phones or touting the wonders of Skype, that um, you can be there even if you're not there. But, uh, you know, what I found was that people are saying the same thing about the telegraph in the 19th century. The telegraph is going to completely solve homesickness and people will never miss home again. And uh, I think the the one problem is you're still not home, even if you can see it on your computer screen or hear it. Uh, on your phone. And so uh, technology, in some ways, may assuage the emotion, may make you feel more connected to the places you've left behind. But some people I talked to also said that it heightened the emotion because they could see and hear everything they missed. Uh, and uh, there was a, a real divide in the people I interviewed uh, who some celebrated the fact that modern technology was, was helping them with their uh, sense of longing, and some felt like it only augmented it. Accentuated it in your op-ed piece. Um, by the way, you can go to um, Susan Matt's uh, page there at uh, Weber State University and, and uh, link over. Uh, but you, uh, you you cite Maria Elena Rivera, psychologist in uh, Tepic, Mexico, and she talks about her sister Carmen, who's been living in San Diego for twenty-five years. So now you have uh, inexpensive long-distance calling, and so she, now she's phoning home every Sunday. And the family's all together back in Mexico eating the meal. Mm-hmm. And Carmen says the, the, this technology made it worse for her, made her more homesick. Yeah, she used the phrase, um, magnificar la, hom- la nostalgia, um, magnifies the homesickness. Um, they still use the word nostalgia in, in Mexico um, for the condition. And so she was convinced that there were some um, ambiguities about technology's effects. On, on emotional life, and that it wasn't all uh, a plus, um, but that her sister seemed to be sadder um, <laughs> the more with the in, increased contact. And so, uh, of course, I think nobody would want to go back to a time when you had less contact, but I, I think that points to the fact that some of these uh, emotional problems brought, brought on by mobility are not um, going to be solved by some technological quick fix unless you can time travel or... Um, get back and forth very quickly and cheaply. And I think that's something else, our, our modern, um, our sense that we can be anywhere, we can just hop a flight or um, get on a train very quickly, um, lulls a lot of people into thinking migration is going to be easy. They've got the technology to talk. They've got the technology to travel cheaply and easily. It should be easy to come back and forth between one place and another. But in fact, for many immigrants, it ends up being much more expensive than they expected, and getting home becomes much harder. So sometimes technology may seduce us into leaving home um, and uh, make us underestimate just how painful it can be. You also, in this op-ed piece, uh, talk about Ricardo Valencia, immigrated from Guadalajara, yeah. went to Nevada so he could pay off a mortgage back home, 
you know, it's a, a fairly typical reason, right, for coming mm-hmm. uh, to better economics. But he always intended to go back. In fact, on day one in Nevada, he wanted to go back home. Yeah, and, you know, that's such a typical um, attitude, not just among modern immigrants, but, um, as I mentioned, since the 17th century. And you certainly find it among Ellis Island immigrants. Most historians of immigration agree that the people who came over in the 19th century and the people who come over in the 20th and 21st all come with the intention of going home. Um, Many end up staying here because um, they develop a family here or um, it costs too much to go home or some combination of things. Many end up liking America. But the first draw for so many people um, was the thought that they could come to America and make a good wage and then go home to the places they really cared about and, um, and buy more acres there, build a better house. And, in fact, lots of immigrants did do that, did go home, and continue to do that. So in the 19th century, close to 50% of all Italian immigrants go home. 15 to 20% of Eastern European Jews go home. Um, and that, in some years, close to 50% of English immigrants went home in the 19th century. So uh, this is a pretty widespread pattern of return migration. And today, um, looking at modern immigrants as a group, 20 to 40% of all immigrants go home. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe more then and now would if if they could. Yeah, I think exactly. When you look at um, the letters and diaries, uh, there's such a, a sense of longing that pervades um, the records they've left behind. And when I went to interview both immigrants living in America now and immigrants who had returned to Mexico, um, most people said, yeah, I came here with every intention of going back, um, going back home. I wonder if you could, um, let's see, this is, I think it's page 171. Uh, you could read the story of uh, someone, you have a whole, a whole uh, most of a chapter here. Well, it is a full chapter. Immigrants and the dream of return. Yeah. And a lot of them find that it, it, it's, it, it is a dream. It doesn't come true. You, you, you can't go home again. Uh, there's not only distance, but there's time that, that passes. So it's, uh, it's paragraph uh, starting countless immigrants. It's the story sure. of uh, Emma Planasek. Yeah, Emma Planasek, who migrated from Slovenia in 1921, revisited her native village after many years. I was home again, visiting and speaking endlessly with people who were part of my past, but at the same time realizing with each passing day that I was no longer tied to my homeland as I had imagined. My heart, which had carried the weight of loneliness for four decades, suddenly was lightened and relieved from fantasies of what might have been. It was evident how much Drabolgi had changed, how much I had changed, and how impossible it was to go back in time and expect everything to be the way I had left it. And she said actually going home cured her of her homesickness because she realized it was no longer there. Uh, and home was no longer there. Especially as the technology, you know, the, the railroad and such, it became easier to get back home. More people did it and, and had similar experience, right? Yeah. Uh, you get, uh, at the end of the 19th century, people able to cross the continent in trains and train cars when they had originally gone from the east to the west in covered wagons. Um, likewise, they can use uh, transatlantic steamships to go home relatively quickly and relatively inexpensively. And what a lot of people find when they make this return is they've been dreaming of a place, um, imagining it's just as they left it, untouched by time. They come back and people have died, people have moved on, new buildings have come up, old buildings have come down. Nothing's as it seems. And I think this is where um, 
homesickness and nostalgia uh, kind of take on new meanings. Uh, as I mentioned before, nostalgia was the traditional word for acute homesickness, and it meant you were longing for a place. Um, a lot of people um, start going back to the places they've missed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and they find those places no longer exist. And I think it's around then that nostalgia begins to take on its new meaning, which is longing for a lost time rather than a lost place, in part because people figure out that's what what they've been missing or, and, and that home is somehow um, unrecoverable, that it, it's back in the past. I wonder if you, of course, you focus in this book on American homesickness. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you've uh, studied other cultures with regard to homesickness. Uh, America is an interesting case study because we have this national mythology of, of, of the restless, the rugged individual, and we have this reputation as being restless. In fact, we've, I think, been criticized for that as well. Yeah. But I, I don't know if there, there are cultural differences in, in homesickness. Yeah, actually, um, the first article I ever read was uh, the one you mentioned by Jean Starobinsky um, in 1966. And he was just talking about French and Swiss um, soldiers who are stricken with the disease in the 16 and 1700s. And I had read his article in grad school and thought it was fascinating because um, there were a few Swiss soldiers dying of homesickness. And I thought, well, that could never happen in America because, precisely because we have uh, become accustomed to mobility. So I was very surprised to find that, in fact, um, Americans were just as susceptible to the disease as uh, the Swiss. But um, while Americans shared qualities with some Europeans, there was this ongoing debate uh, in the medical literature and psychological literature about who was most likely to be homesick. So um, the Swiss were the first case, and I think it was because a lot of young Swiss men in the 16 and 1700s were going off and fighting as mercenaries in other armies, so they were getting displaced. Um, and so they seemed particularly prone to the condition. On the other hand, some claimed the English never felt homesick uh, because they were a nation that was used to trade and colonization, I don't think that's probably true, but that was the national stereotype. It seemed a pretty pervasive condition among the French, um, and in fact, uh, there's some interesting research being done on that right now. So um, I think it takes on different... um, It has uh, different characteristics in in different cultures, and um, not everybody necessarily treats it with the same um, disdain that Americans do today, I Mm -hmm. think, in some places more acceptable to admit you miss home than it is in America. But you do find across Western Europe, as nations are modernizing, as economies are becoming more global, that lots of people around the world are experiencing these same feelings. And I'm, I'm interested especially in this idea of uh, this word, which, which can't be totally translated into English. It's saudades. It's a Portuguese word. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking at the Wikipedia definition, a, dis- a deep emotional state of nostalgic or profound melancholic longing for an absent something or someone that one loves. Uh, so that's very ingrained in, in Portuguese and Brazilian culture, you know, for, right. for one example. I, I guess that could illustrate as well that this, this feeling is universal. Yeah, and, you know, there's a whole debate among a historian's emotion of, you know, you may find similar words, and is it the same emotion, or does the fact that the words are embedded in a different language and a different culture mean it's something slightly different? And I don't think there's any definitive way to answer if it's the same emotion or not. But we do know um, that 
leaving home has has caused pain. It may take on different forms and have different meanings, but uh, whether it's um, the Odyssey, um, uh, Homer's Odyssey, or um, the um, you know medieval medieval voyagers far from home, there are references to people experiencing a yearning desire to be back where they where they started. By the way, in Brazil, Day of Saudade is the third, 30th of January, so that's coming up this week. So oh. just if you, if you want to celebrate that. Um, so we're going to take another break, and uh, we'll be back with Susan Matt, who's author of Homesickness and American History. In our final segment, I want to uh, get into recounting. Uh, there's a very impactful story, Susan Matt, have you tell this uh, in the book of, of, a, uh, of a slave woman who actually killed herself. There, there's mm-hmm. a, a belief prevalent, I guess, at the time that that's the only way you could get back. Right, um, right. Your soul would go back. So we'll, we'll talk about that and, and Indian migration and some other things we, as we wrap up this uh, topic for today following the break. UPR is supported by our members and the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, celebrating 14 years of making music together with 2021 to 2022 season tickets, including Christmas from the Danes Concert Hall, with special guests Voctave. Season tickets at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. Support also comes from Silicon Slopes Magazine, focused on Utah tech, business, and startups, supporting causes that affect us all. Information about upcoming events and advertising in the magazine at siliconslopes.com, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2015. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about homesickness. The book is Homesickness in American History. It's out from Oxford University Press. Susan Matt is the author. She is Presidential Distinguished Professor of History at Weber State University and uh, Chair of the History Department there. Uh, and uh, we're talking about this feeling I think we've all had, but in our culture, in our times, homesickness is dismissed. It's a sign of immaturity. It's what children feel at summer camp. It's a very real uh, emotion, however. And uh, Susan Matt says we, we need to, to look at it. And I suppose you would say, Susan Matt, we... We shouldn't repress it. What should we? What should we do with this if we feel it? Well, I think it would be a, a good thing for Americans to admit they have it, uh, so that um, people who are moving and uprooted don't feel so alone in their sadness and displacement. Because I think it can be a very isolating experience to feel that you're the only person who's ever felt homesick. When in fact, it's a very American thing to be homesick, and that it's been with us since the founding of. Uh, the colonies. And so I think it would be a much healthier thing if we admitted that mobility has costs. It also brings opportunities and advantages, but it certainly has um, um, takes an emotional toll. Uh, I'd like to go back to, to your example. You and your husband decide you want to come out west. So you, you come out to, to Utah. I've been here 16 years. Uh, so what would you suggest? What You'd put an investment into your new place, I imagine. You'd, you know, you don't just live apart, that would probably help. Yeah, and that's certainly the advice people get is throw yourself into your n- new community. Uh, the old advice used to be uh, don't call home. Uh, that would toughen you up. I'm not sure I see much point in that. Uh, I, I think it's part of our national obsession of being independent and not ever showing uh, neediness uh, that you're not supposed to admit you have these emotions. So um, while the old advice was don't call home, I don't see why it would hurt, but you also want to invest in the new new place and develop uh, a new set of connections as well. And I think our modern age actually accommodates 
that pretty well, that you can do both. Let's go back and talk a little bit about uh, some of the dark side of this uh, this uh, idea of homesickness, uh, starting with slavery. Of course, these are people who were forcibly brought to a, a new new country. And I was very interested to, to learn about this belief, at least early on. And there's a African-American woman who, uh, who she, she digs a hole, right? And she yeah. eviscerates herself. Uh, tell me about this. Yeah, so uh, there was an article that uh, appeared in the 1730s, in the Boston Gazette in 1733, um, the newspaper there, talking about a recent suicide. And it read, a Negro woman at Salem, determined to go into her ho- into her own country, as she called it, took a bottle of rum and two biscuits and carried them into the burying place there where she dug a hole and covered them, and then took a knife and cut her billy so much that her guts came out. Her wound was sewed up, but she died a day or two afterwards. And she was acting on a belief that was widespread among uh, African slaves and even among their children who were born in America that upon death you would be reincarnated and liberated and back in Africa. Uh, so you see, throughout the whole course of the enslavement process, um, when people are in slave ships, they're often jumping overboard and committing suicide, um, believing that they'll be brought back in, back to life and in freedom uh, in Africa upon death. And once people are here, uh, some people kill themselves um, in slavery. There are lots of accounts all across the East Coast of people doing this. I also found accounts of people who hope to make the journey back alive. And so there are these really heartbreaking accounts, heartbreaking because we know they weren't successful attempts, uh, of people you know, trying to paddle a canoe from South Carolina across the Atlantic Ocean or people trying to board ships in the hope that they would uh, take them back to Africa. Lots of ads in Colonial Newspaper talked about people intending to go home and be on the lookout for this runaway slave because he's trying to get back. Uh, so... For the people who had the least control over their migrations, um, their forced migrations, homesickness was particularly acute because not only were you missing people, but you had you had no control. And I'm not saying that's the only emotion uh, slaves felt. They surely felt anger and injustice and um, uh, a whole host of other feelings. But um, homesickness was was certainly um, a powerful a powerful feeling. Just have a couple minutes left. I'd I'd like to, to end with this. There's a very interesting um, picture. It's on mm-hmm. page one sixteen, and um, it's it's an Indian uh, boy who's plowing, and and there's a cloud, one of those thought clouds, and he's he, he's remembering his former life with, yeah, with teepees and a, such. It's a, an illustration from the Carlisle Indian magazine from 1918, and the Carlisle Indian School was established in the 19th century uh, by Richard Henry Pratt, who had the idea that if you could take Native Americans away from their tribes and educate them in these boarding schools, you could teach them how to be individualistic Americans who would uh, be modern and not so tied to a particular piece of land, um, but integrate into the American scene. And so the the illustration conveys how uh, Colonel P- Pratt and his colleagues thought this process should look, where you'd have um, uh, a native young man um, plowing fields as a white American was, but still kind of fondly recollecting on on the life he'd left behind, but not going back to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that was the hope of so many boarding schools, and those boarding schools were just 
really uh, quite emotionally grueling experiences for so many Native young people who, in their memoirs and letters, talk again and again of of just uh, often going against their will. Um, Everybody was crying um, because they wanted to go home. But once they go home, they don't quite fit in because they have a different sense of the world. They have a different education and different expectations, and they, too, feel caught between two societies. We'll end with a uh, comment from Steve in Arizona who joins us on our email. Uh, He says, a comment, not a question. Seven or eight years ago, as a middle-aged man, I immigrated, quote-unquote, from the East Coast to Arizona border with Utah. At first, the culture, big pickup trucks and belt buckles, casinos, cowboy hats and boots seemed alien and exotic, and the arid landscape, particularly in the blazing heat of the summer, was quite shocking. No longer. I am quite accustomed to it and enjoy it now, though I have managed to create a small uh, simulacrum of uh, Connecticut on uh, two acres surrounding the house where I live. So adapted have I become that now when I visit the east, it is the lush green verdure of the landscape which shocks the eyes. Still, Mm -hmm. I don't think I will ever feel fully home in the west, as I surely would have had I come at a younger age, and I will always take comfort in visits, uh, quote-unquote, home. That's that's interesting. I, I wonder if any of that resonates with you, Susan, Matt, especially uh, I want to follow up on this idea of he, he feels like he would have become better accustomed perhaps if he'd come as a younger man. Yeah, and I think the longer you're in a place, the more years you have, you realize that you've lived longer often in, in the new home than the one you've been calling home. That's certainly the case for me, that I've lived longer in, in Ogden than I've lived anyplace else in my life. So mm-hmm. um, that certainly is making it more homelike with every passing year. And interesting, he's created uh, uh, you know small Connecticut on two acres surrounding his house. Uh, that's something we all do, I think. Yeah, you, you find the artifacts that, that bring comfort and the people and the sounds and recreate home. And I think we've all become pretty good at that as Americans. Well, thanks for that, Steve. And uh, thanks to you, Susan Matt. Uh, Susan Matt is... Uh, Presidential uh, Distinguished Professor of History at Weber State University, author of uh, several works, including the one we talked about today, Homesickness and American History. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for joining me today as well. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T. here, doing a little space exploration of our own, looking up and entering the evening sky to start a new lunation. The thin moon hangs upper right of Mercury, then upper right of Venus, low in the west-southwestern twilight. You may mistake Venus for an incoming jet. Little blue sublime Spica hangs between the crescent moon and Venus. The moon and Venus will point the way to Spica, but if you follow the map you can see the pale twinkling blue dot in the southwest above the horizon. In reality though, little Spica is nearly 1,000 times larger than Venus in physical diameter and with its blinding blue-white temperature it emits 5 trillion times more light than the sunlight that Venus reflects. At a distance of 260 light years away, space is big. Before the moonlight returns to the evening sky in a big way next week, get up into the mountains or out in the desert or a lake in Wyoming and trace out the Milky Way, arching from southwest horizon to zenith to northeast horizon. Enjoy the journey and then look overhead again for Cygnus the Swan. High overhead, the big stars like Deneb on the left side of the swan make it easy to find. It's in the shape of the Summer Cross. Cygnus Swan sports the sublime crystalline Cygnus Star Cloud, one of the Milky Way's richest areas to explore in depth with your bare naked eyes, binoculars, or a a 100-inch Dobsonian telescope you might have in your back pocket. 
On Skywatcher Leo T, it's many cultures, one sky, as we look at the swan from a painting from the ethereal Susan Saden Boulay and animal spirit cards from Pomegranate Communication. This painting of Susan Boulay's of a swan maiden represents a common motif found in the mythologies and folktales of many cultures around the globe, from Native American to Slavic. Although the story varies from place to place, the basic plot is the same. A young man finds a feathered robe or skin of a swan maiden, a goddess-like creature which she has temporarily shed to assume human form. Although the youth attempts to hide the feathers from the maiden, which would allow him to possess her, the swan finds its feathers, assumes its animal form, and leaves the youth to ponder. The lost swan thus symbolizes the departure of youthful innocence and passage to maturity. In Greek mythology, the swan song is the beautiful song sung by the swan just before death. So celebrate the beautiful swan alive on earth and in the sky as we look up, look around, and as we do that, let's uh, take a look back at Michael Collins and John Young, Gemini 10, launched July 18, 1966. In his book, Carrying the Fire, Michael Collins translates the amazing feeling of being in space and the interesting communication with mission control. This is one of the busiest flights of the entire space program, with the double rendezvous, the first. Two spacewalks by Collins and uh, they had a little bit of fun. Way to go, NASA. So keep looking up. Look around, get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations statewide and streaming live. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Thank you. 